So Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus. Last time I taught, a couple of weeks ago, um, we, we looked at uh, 2 Timothy 3 and 4, and we spoke about the sufficiency of Scripture. We talked about how Scripture was sufficient for salvation, sufficient for sanctification. And today, if you, if you want to kind of link those two sermons, these two sermons together, today we're really going to be looking at the concept of the sovereignty of Scripture. Or more accurately, perhaps, the sovereignty of God in Revelation. And so let's have a quick look. And we won't be going through in our normal depth. We've got a a larger passage here. So um, bear with me as we skim through uh, the early stages. But this is immediately after the resurrection. Peter has run to the tomb and seen the empty tomb and the clothes. And it's that same day, we're told in verse 13, that two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, Jesus' post-resurrection is a very, very hard thing for us to fathom, insofar as how much of what he did and didn't do, how he was perceived and not perceived, how much of that is to do with the fact that he is now in a glorified body as opposed to his earthly body, which could suffer harm and damage and clearly did at the cross, and how much of it is just because he's God. So it's very hard for us to ascertain. But here, in this case, we're told specifically. In this situation, we're told that the reason that they didn't recognize Jesus was because he specifically didn't allow them to. Now this is crucial. This is going to underpin everything that follows in this section and in the one that follows. The reason that they didn't recognize Jesus is because he didn't allow them to. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We'll come back to that. Verse 17. He said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And one of the, uh, uh, sorry, and they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? (laughs) He's probing them to speak and to talk and to share what they believe and know. Um, I won't make a point of it, but just, just a little nudge that maybe the way that Jesus is replying, many of us ourselves might be uncomfortable in answering in those kind of elusive terms. But Jesus, who is truth, was certainly able to do this without committing sin. What on earth are you talking about, essentially? What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, 
but they did not, but him they did not see. Now, this is the account that they gave, and it's incredible with regards to a few specific details. Firstly, earlier on in the ministry of Jesus, when he's dealing with his disciples, there are several occasions where it becomes very clear that at least some of the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the issue of his Messiahship has been front and center stage of the entirety of his ministry. He has been in constant conflict with the religious leaders who have rejected his messianic claims because he has rejected their legalistic laws. The the conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees was never, again, never over Mosaic law. Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly. He had to, to fulfill it. He had to keep it perfectly. If, one thing I'm always fond of saying, if Jesus had eaten a bacon sandwich, then his death on the cross would have accomplished nothing. It seems weird to us, but as a Jewish man, fully human as well as fully God, he was obliged to keep the law of Moses, which ironically he himself wrote, because Moses was given the law by God from the hand of Christ. So Jesus did never in his ministry ever sought to avoid or to not keep or to resist or to reject the law of Moses. Now, praise God, you can eat bacon sandwiches now because the law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And the sacrificial system has been done away with and so on and so forth because we now have our one sacrifice for once and for all in Christ himself. So the law has, may well have come to an end, but at the time, Jesus had to keep the law. Now I say all of that so that we understand that the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees constantly was not over the law of Moses. Although if you were to read the Bible without understanding the background to some degree, you might occasionally think so. Jesus is constantly co- uh, uh, clashing with them over the issue of their interpretation of the law. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, that that very well-known passage where Jesus is teaching on the hillside, he says repeatedly at that time to the crowds, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, they have interpreted Moses this way, but let me interpret Moses for you. They think that if you just simply do certain things that you can check your box and say, okay, that's that law kept. And Jesus said, ah, that's not that simple. Because the law is there to expose your heart. Unless your heart is pure, you're not keeping the law. Blessed are the pure in heart. And so on and so forth. Anyway, little rabbit trail. But my point is this, that Jesus is having constant conflict with the Pharisees because he rejected their way of religious life. And so they then rejected his messiahship. He did various miracles that they, in their own writing, said that only the messiah would be able to do. Those of you who've stuck with the Bible reading plan with us from the start of the year, you'd have got yourself through Leviticus, so congratulations to you on that. And you would have noticed in the book of Leviticus, there's an entire chapter that tells the Jews what to do should one of them be healed from leprosy. Miriam was healed from leprosy, but that law hadn't been given at that time. Naaman was healed from leprosy, but he wasn't a Jew and he wasn't obliged to keep the law. Nobody who was a Jew since the giving of that law had ever been healed of leprosy. So the Pharisees, the rabbis, in their own writings said, 
This must be something that is reserved for the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will be able to heal people from leprosy. And in that chapter of Leviticus, there is a requirement that the high priest and the, the priest of God had to do, even when somebody claims to have been healed of leprosy. And then they had to go and do an investigation, and then if they're seen to be healed, there has to be more sacrifices. And so you have that very comical situation where Jesus heals ten lepers and sends them one after the other. Boom, boom, boom. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Ten times through. And so Jesus is showing them, even in their own understanding, that he was the Messiah. And, of course, at the end, he says to them, you won't get any more signs apart from the sign of Jonah, a reference to his death, burial, and resurrection, which is going to become crucial here. So the issue of his messiahship is absolutely central. The believers in Jesus, the disciples, have believed that he was the Messiah. Peter famously he says, we believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. There was clear faith in the Messiahship of Jesus. Now there was a lack of understanding about what that meant, as we're going to see here in a moment. But there was a clear understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, look at this passage before us. After the resurrection, when things are still unclear, when they're talking to this supposed stranger, they say concerning, this is verse 19, second half, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed. Jesus has just got demoted. And it's fascinating in the scriptures how people progress in their understanding. John in particular is very good about this. We have Nicodemus, we've spoken about this in the past. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, hiding away, doesn't want the other Pharisees to see him coming. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, I know that you're from God. We know that you're from God. Why? Because of what you've done, the miracles you've done. No one could do that apart from God. Mighty indeed. Same expression here. So Nicodemus had a faith of sorts. And yet Jesus said to him, Hey pal, unless you're born again, you won't enter in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, his faith is insufficient for salvation. He believes that Jesus is perhaps a prophet, that he's been sent from God. That's what a prophet is, someone sent from God. And that he can do amazing things. He's a prophet mighty indeed. Nicodemus believed that. And yet it wasn't sufficient for salvation. It wasn't sufficient to be part of the kingdom of God. And then in the next chapter after Nicodemus, we have the Samaritan woman at the well. And we go from the man who should, by all intents and purposes, as far as human effort and human status is concerned, he should have been the one who is absolutely guaranteed to be part of the kingdom of God. He wasn't just a leader. He wasn't just a Pharisee. When Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel, definite article, he is referring to him as somebody who trained other rabbis. He was head of a rabbinical school. And so Nicodemus, if anyone's going to get a place in heaven, surely it's going to be Nicodemus. Surely. And we go from him, who doesn't have a place in the kingdom, to the woman who is least likely to have a place in the kingdom. She is a Samaritan woman. A half-breed, mud-blood, if you want to use modern terminology. That she, she's somebody who, who is 
is as a race already compromised. Morally, she's compromised. She's so compromised that it seems as if she's going out to gather water in the heat of the day away from all of her peers and her social circles, if indeed she had some. And when she speaks to Jesus in John 4, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she goes in the opposite direction. She goes from saying, oh, you're, you're, you're a Jew, why are you talking to me? To, oh, wow, you can, you can see stuff, you know stuff, you must be a prophet. To going to her fellow Samaritans who she was avoiding prior to this point and saying, I think I found the Messiah. The disciples are doing the exact opposite on the road to Emmaus that the Samaritan woman did. She went from, you're a prophet, to you're the Messiah. And now they're going from, you're the Messiah, to maybe you're just a prophet. Does that mean, does that mean that these disciples, Cleopas and the other one, does that mean that they were never saved? Does that mean that they haven't been that they hadn't trusted in faith, that their faith, like Nicodemus, wasn't genuine. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I, I don't think that is the case. It's, it's impossible for us to look at a person and to know their heart and to know if they're saved or not. Jesus in the parable warns his disciples with regards to separating the wheat and the tares. I'm concerned, it's concerned me for many years, that in our circles... Some people like to separate the wheat and tares as if it was some sort of participation sport. Something that Jesus specifically said not to do. Judas was never saved. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. He had no saving faith. Peter did. And yet when he was asked about Jesus, he denied him three times. At that point, does it look like Peter's saved? Not at all. At that point... Would we say, hey, Peter, don't worry, pal, it's a hard, you're going through a hard time, but you can be assured that you're saved. No, we wouldn't. We shouldn't give someone who denies Christ any assurance of salvation, and yet he was. We don't know when someone goes through times like that, whether their rejection of Christ, whether the words that they speak, the things that they say, whether that is evidence that they were never saved, or whether they are simply what is often termed as backsliding. The answer, I think, becomes clear later on in their lives, as it did with Peter, and as it will with these people. But perhaps I mentioned that in passing as a plea for us to just not get into separating wheat and tares. We just don't know in people's lives. But we should never give assurance to those who would reject Christ. But all of that is to say that this is an astonishing thing that is being said. We are talking about disciples of Jesus after the resurrection have just downgraded him from Messiah to prophet. Shocking. But the fact that they thought he was the Messiah is very clear in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now herein lies the crux. In that one phrase, we see two things. We see their belief previously 
maybe clinging on a little bit, that he was the Messiah. Because the one who redeems Israel is the Messiah. You don't get anything else from that phrase in the Old Testament. No one else is redeeming Israel. There is a Messiah. There is an anointed one. There is one who is the suffering servant. There is one who is the righteous one. There is one who is going to be the king in the line of David. There is, there is God's son. There is the Messiah. And he was going to be that one, they hoped, they thought. But secondly, the second thing that comes through with that statement is this. That they misunderstood his messiahship. The Jews, in times gone by, if you study the, re- the writings of the rabbis, is that because of the very different types of prophecies concerning the messiah, some rabbis, just before the time of Christ had concluded that there might be two messiahs. Messiah ben David, Messiah son of David, he's the one that, you know, the king on the throne, you know, taking all the enemies out and establishing a kingdom. But there were other prophecies concerning the messiah that didn't seem to fit in with that. And so they would call that messiah, Messiah ben Joseph. The exact reasons I haven't fully ascertained, but I suspect it may be to do with Joseph of the Old Testament and the roller coaster ride of success and failure and up and down that was his life. That the Messiah would suffer but rise up again. Fortunately, they didn't make the connection. <laughs> Virtually all of the lament psalms of the Bible are psalms of David. And that it is the one who is the king who is also the one who is going to suffer. But under the time of the Pharisees who were in error in so many ways but in one of those ways they were almost like the prosperity gospel preachers of their day they'd forgotten about the Messiah Ben Joseph and only really taught about Messiah Ben David Jesus's Messiahship in the eyes of the Jewish people of that day was grounded in one thing alone is he going to kick out the Romans and redeem set free Israel That's it, because that was their theology that they'd been brought up on. And so because he's now died and he hasn't done that, he can't be the Messiah. So who was he then? We know he's good, we know he's of God, maybe he was just a prophet. But if he was a prophet, he was saying he was the Messiah and that would make it untrue. So is he still a... They're confused. And so it is that Jesus, you remember earlier in the Gospels, Jesus had said to Peter, he said said to the disciples multiple times that he is going to suffer, he's going to be betrayed first, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but he'll rise again on the third day. He told them that multiple times. And we're told that Peter, and it literally says this word, rebuked him. Can Can you believe that? Peter's like, hey, Jesus, your theology is terrible. Let me correct you on this point. That's essentially what Peter was doing. So Jesus then rebukes him back. But they did not get this. They had faith in him as Messiah, but their faith was wanting with regards to its accuracy. Now, before we come through to the main point, which is going to become clear in a moment, I want to tell you this. And you know this this is cliched, I know, but let me say it anyway. Every single one of us is a theologian. If we're a Christian, we're a theologian. The only question is, is are we a good theologian? Are we a studious theologian? Or are we a poor theologian? Some churches and some Christians today emphasize keeping everything simple. 
just want to, we just want it to be simple. Can we just, can we just keep things simple? Well, God obviously didn't agree because he gave us the book of Ezekiel for starters. It seems to me that many churches that actually advertise themselves as being a simple church are the very kind of churches that are rebuked in Hebrews 5 where it says that all you ever do is drink milk and you should be on solid food right now and yet you're not. And then the problem with that is, is that while we're having baby food, we continue to be babies. What is astonishing, and what is going to be the main point of this passage, is that after three years of personal instruction from the Messiah, God incarnate himself, they still don't get it. Man, I tell you, there are so many things over the years, I won't be too specific and embarrass myself, but there's been books in the Bible I've taught once, twice over the years, and I come to teach it the third time, and I'm like... What? I never saw that before. And the whole purpose and structure of the book is suddenly different and changed. And you say, man, how did I not see that? And so it is, is that we have to make sure that we are people who are serious in our study. Because when we have bad theology, let me say this clearly, it affects us. And it doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. Now it's all well and good saying, well, let's just keep it simple. And maybe if someone's never been to church and you're just sharing the gospel with them for the first time, then, you know, if someone's just a brand new baby Christian, then they need to have milk. That's a good thing. Having milk when you're a baby is a good thing. Right? We're not going to see Jason and Becky giving their little baby any, uh, a steak anytime soon. Not a chance. So, so what we need to do is we need to remember, yes, there's a place for milk, but as we grow, we need to get serious in our study. Because when we don't, and when we have bad theology, it affects us. Here are people who are downgrading Jesus from Messiah to prophet because of their misunderstanding of the scriptures. Absolutely crucial. And we are not only all theologians, we are all disciples. And we are all disciple makers. Again, the only question is, are we doing it well or not? So when we speak to someone in a conversation, when we give misinformation, when we don't know answers, when we, when, when we, when we confuse people, then all of these things impact other people through our lack of understanding. That's why we need to be people of the word. We have to be people of the word. Crucially so. Because otherwise, the consequences can be quite significant. And he says, yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And then it's, uh, we're told that the women, and by the way, just in passing, many of you will know this, of course, but one of the astonishing things about the resurrection account is that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And that's ama- amazing because under Jewish law, they had no testimony. There was no value to them. It didn't count as a witness. God changing the course of things. If, if somebody was going to make up an account of a resurrection, if someone was going to pretend there was a resurrection that didn't happen, the last thing you would do is, is say, oh, well, these women saw it. Because you immediately look stupid in that culture, in that context. 
You know, you, you, could, you could have some, some guy down the road who's maybe a shady guy, dodgy dealer, you know, someone you wouldn't really trust, but his testimony would count in law, whereas the woman's wouldn't. So if you are God and you are going to, you are going to have a, a resurrection and witnesses of that resurrection, women would not be the ones that you would choose if it was you. But fortunately, God is wiser than we are. And that is a, a, a very good argument for the legitimacy and the authenticity of the resurrection. One of many, obviously, but it is nonetheless one. And so the women were there and they found it and they found that the body wasn't there. Right, verse 25, here we go. Oh foolish, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I hope that when I see Jesus, the words I will hear are well done, good and faithful servant. I'd be lying though if I didn't think on some days he's more likely to say, oh foolish one. (laughs) Slow of heart to believe. They were supposed to know. They were supposed to know. And specifically this. Oh, and one sec before I move on to verse 26. To believe all that the prophets had spoken. All that the prophets had spoken. There are some Christians who want to have a certain portion of the Bible. They want to have a certain portion of God's revelation. Tell me, tell me about all that kindness and love stuff. I like that, Jesus. You know? And then you get the people who, with regards to eschatology, the study of end times, they jokingly refer to themselves as pan-millennialists. It'll all pan out in the end. Ha, 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 nudge, nudge, chortle, chortle. But the reality is, is that Jesus is rebuking them for not knowing all that the prophets had said. You, You can't say, I like this bit and not that bit. That's why in this church we spent over two years teaching through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. At some point we'll probably spend another two years doing 40 to 66 when I get the strength. But, but we need to know what the prophets say. We need to know all of these things. We don't want our faith again to be a shallow faith. This is what he's rebuking them for. So verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, and if you didn't know, Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, just as Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Christ is not his surname. It's not Jesus Christ, son of Mr. Christ. You know, it is Jesus Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what's being said with the terms Jesus Christ. That this one, Jesus, is the Messiah. So when it says here, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer and enter into his glory? So you like yourself a bit of Psalm 2, do you? You know, the king coming, crushing his enemies. Enemies will be his footstool. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Oh, I'll have a bit of Psalm 2. Isaiah 53? Uh, Not so much. That was a struggle for the Jews. That's why when Jesus is on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hadn't forsaken him, of course. I don't believe in the sense that many theologians teach. 
He's quoting Psalm 22. He's pointing them to Psalm 22, which begins with the psalmist, David, lamenting. He's in a situation that makes it feel like God has deserted and forsaken him, but he knows that he hasn't because by the end of that psalm, it says, and he will raise me up. Boom. So Jesus is pointing them again, even on the cross, to the fact that the Messiah would be forsaken and then he would be raised up. But they should have known. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think Jesus might have taught them this a few times. I think in all of the studying that Jesus did with them and all the learning that they had to do, that this lesson may have come up a few times. Clearly, when Jesus says the Son of Man has to be betrayed and suffer and die and, and, and will be raised again on the third day, they've got a clear inkling of what's going on. He said it multiple times. Peter had to rebuke him for it. So he's clearly saying that. But they hadn't realized that the suffering must come before the entering into the glory. And then we have, I think, one of the most amazing verses in the entirety of Scripture. Verse 27. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, to be a fly on that wall, huh? I mean, what a privilege it must have been. There they are being taught. And I don't know how long this walk was, how long the journey was. And I mean, we're given an idea, but in the sense of this particular conversation, how long was it? To what degree did he go into depth and what have you? But what is very, very clear is that he went through the breadth of the Old Testament revelation and taught them what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. Now there's some good books out here, out, out today, that do that exact same thing, that take us through the Old Testament and tell us what the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah. And so Jesus gives them that theology again in detail. Now at this point, verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Again, it's similar to what we had earlier, isn't it? Jesus behaving in a way that we might consider a little bit duplicitous, but no, clearly no sin here. But he kind of pretends he's going on a bit further. And they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, that's significant. And people miss this a lot, actually. Um, man, I have, a, I have a friend who wrote a, a, a master's thesis on this, and it's a fascinating read. But it's something that I hope he writes up one day, because he did his whole thesis about um, the concept of fellowship and food and how significant that is theologically. It's, it's amazing to me that again and again and again, fellowship and inclusion within that fellowship is associated with, with eating, with eating together. In the story of Joseph, it's fascinating that when Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit, they then ate together without him because he was now excluded. And then at the end of the story of Joseph, what does Joseph do with his brothers? He eats with them again, fellowship restored. And this is significant and goes right the way through Scripture. It is, by the, by the way, why in Galatians it's so significant that Peter wasn't eating with the Gentiles. 
And Paul had to rebuke him for it. Why? Because it, it wasn't just like, I don't want to hang out with you, you're not my friends, I'd rather eat with somebody else. There was a significance to, of inclusion of fellowship with eating together. Baptists certainly seem to understand that. But you get my point. We eat together, we fellowship together, we are together. And so what is happening theologically at this point is that Jesus, by staying with them and breaking bread with them, is incorporating them into fellowship with him. That is why, at that point, their eyes are opened. Now, I want you to understand this. They may well have asked him, but he's the one who chose to be there. He is the one who broke the bread. He is the one who fellowshiped with them. And he is the one who opened their eyes. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And that's just crazy. What an amazing thing. Their eyes are opened and then they see him and bam, he's gone. Now there's, there's more theologically going on here be, be beyond the whole wow, the, you know, just picture it in your mind's eye as a, as a movie and what that must have looked like and stuff. But beyond all of that, there's theology going on here. Because throughout the Gospels, Jesus, one of the passages of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes the most in the Gospels is Isaiah 6. We know Isaiah 6, many of us. The year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up upon the throne of the temple. Yes, we're familiar with that passage. And yet, that is not the part of Isaiah 6 that Jesus is so fond of quoting. Isaiah is there in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, I think, specifically. And he realizes his own guilt. And the seraphim, which are the the angelic beings that protected the holiness of God, that God is holy and set apart that he realizes that he is now done for. That these fiery serpents that are the seraphim, that their job is to keep people like him away from God. And as they approach him with hot coals on tongs, he knows his time is up. And then miraculously his lips are touched and he's declared to be clean. There is in that passage the foundations of the entire book of Isaiah. In that those who should be condemned for their sin are redeemed. Redeemed by a holy God. And then immediately after that, God says, well, who shall I send to Isaiah who's now redeemed, who is, who is stunned and amazed and, and, and in wonderment at the mercy of God of, of cleansing him rather than killing him, which is what should have happened for all intents and purposes. says, here I am, send me. And so it is then that, G, uh, that Jesus, the Lord, then says to Isaiah this. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Firstly, it's an amazing thing to say. Hey, who, who, who can I send to go and be my prophet to the people and speak my words? Oh, Isaiah says, I'll go. Fantastic. Here's your job. I want you to go and preach to them in such a way that they don't hear and they don't see and they don't understand. Well, well why would you want to do that, Lord? Well, because if we did that, they might repent. That's what Isaiah is told. Now, that seems astonishingly harsh to us, 
but it comes in Isaiah 6, which immediately follows Isaiah 5, where we have the song of the vineyard, and the vineyard is given all it needs, water and good soil and protection, all it needs to produce good fruit. And then the fruit comes, the harvest comes, and what happens? Sour fruit, rotten fruit. And so God asks the Israelites this question, what would you do if that was your vineyard? The answer is simple. You're wasting your time. You just tear everything up and you, you'd be done with it. You, you did everything that you could have possibly done and you still got bad fruit. You just tear the whole thing up. And that's the, that is the foundation before Isaiah 6. Israel is that vineyard. They rejected their Messiah. They embraced idolatry. And so Isaiah is going to give them a message, but they will not be able to hear and understand. And the other amazing thing about this passage, then Isaiah then goes on to say, how long, and he says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. And he goes on to speak of the judgment that must become before eyes are opened. And without getting too lost in Isaiah 6, let me just simply say this, that the times that Jesus quotes this, one of the times anyway, he quotes this, and by the way, Paul as well in 1 Corinthians, it's a key passage of scripture. And he quotes it in reference to the parables. Now many of you may think that the idea behind parables is that, well, how am I going to remember this theology? I know, I'll tell you a little story and then you'll remember it. Maybe there's an element of that there, but the main point of parables, according to Matthew and Mark's Gospels, Jesus says, I speak in parables so they wouldn't understand. In other words, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but the Jews, Jesus came and said to them, that kingdom that you were promised, here it is, it's at hand, it's ready. Were they going to accept his Messiahship and have the kingdom? No. They rejected him. And so he says, that's now the unforgivable sin. Now, Christians have got tongue-tied over the unforgivable sin over the years. You know, prosperity gospel preachers say, oh, oh, you're speaking against me. Oh, that's the unforgivable sin. Very convenient doctrine. Many other Christians say the, the, uh, the act of rejecting Jesus is the unforgivable sin. Well, that makes no sense because... I rejected him for the first 12 years of my life, but he forgave me because I believe him now. So that clearly is not the case. The unforgivable sin was not an individual sin, it was a national sin. And it's, that's shown in the passage where multiple times, this generation, this generation, this evil, wicked generation, this generation, that what they did was unique. They had the Messiah in human flesh, God incarnate before them, and they rejected him and said, you are possessed by Beelzebub. That's the unforgivable sin. And from that point forwards, there was no redemption for Israel at that time. Any individual could be saved and believe, but the Jews as a nation were condemned once again to blindness. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah and says, you're not going to hear, you're not going to hear, uh, you're not going to see rather, you're not going to understand. Blindness. Now, all of that to say, as we come back to Luke 24, that what Jesus is doing here now, in this verse, is he breaks bread, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Many of you here today can testify to this very thing. 
that you were enemies of God, that you resisted him, and that you heard truths, and those truths you rejected. And then one day, your eyes were opened. Why is it that we can read the same passage of scripture ten times? And on the first nine, we just don't get it. And then one day we do. We as Christians sometimes think that, that the, in, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is, is, is enough. In so far as, well, we know that this is true, but this passage is a reminder to us that the inspiration of Scripture doesn't help us without the illumination of Scripture. Another work of the Holy Spirit. We need to take this so seriously, friends. People can devote their entire lives to studying scripture and be wrong. There are countless Nicodemuses around the world. We want to make sure that we know the truth. How do we do such a thing? Well, yes. Practical reason, uh, methods, hermeneutics, how we approach the scripture, you know, good, good, good ways of reading the Bible and all of that. And, and we teach that here and, and, and hopefully, I, can, I know many of you are growing in that, which is wonderful to see. But ultimately this is it. We saw this in James and we talked through it a while back. That James 1, that famous passage where it says, be slow, oh, so quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. That that passage is in the context of scripture we need to come to the bible and say i don't know you do know open my eyes whenever i come to teach a book of the bible that i've taught before at this church i make sure that i start afresh i used to remember years ago teaching at a bible college and um there was a guy there who was asked to teach the class of, it was Revelation he was teaching. And I said, uh, so what have you been using for your Revelation preparation? Kind of wondering what commentaries he was having and what have you. you know, when, it, when it was time to prepare a book, I would uh, go to the library and come out with a big stack of books to come and study with. You know, I said to him, what, what are you using for your Revelation study? And he said, let me show you. And he went to his filing cabinet and he pulled out his notes that he'd used when teaching Revelation 20 years previously. Guys, it just won't do. We just need to understand that we are fallen. We are human. We fail. We get things wrong. And we need to keep on growing, keep on learning, keep on reassessing, adjusting, checking. Search my heart, O God, Psalm 139. And if there be any wicked way in me, how often do we pray these prayers? And how often do we pray them in the context of coming to Scripture? It's so easy for us to come to church, particularly a Bible teaching church, to come to church and say, oh, I'm feeling hungry. I'm looking forward to some Bible teaching in my belly, you know, let me come and be fed. With that attitude, rather than coming in in humility and saying, Lord, I need to hear from you today. I need you to open my eyes. Because the one thing that is so clear in this passage is that God is sovereign with regards to the illumination of scripture. Do we think that Jesus' teaching of his disciples was somehow substandard? 
hey, sorry guys, I, I, sorry you didn't understand. I did a really lousy job of teaching you for the last three years. No, 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 no. God sovereignly opened their eyes when he chose to sovereignly open their eyes. There's two responses to that. One of those is that we need to plead, beg God and say, open my eyes. If you're doing the Bible reading plan, which I hope you are with us this year, every time you come to the passage, Lord, please open my eyes. May this not be a religious exercise, but may this be transformative. And every time we come to church, Lord, open my eyes today. Please, I pray. That's why we have a prayer meeting at half past ten before the service. If you want to come here a little bit earlier, get in the back room. There's more parking spaces at 10.30. That's another advantage. But you come at 10.30, you go in the back room, and that's what we pray. We pray that God will open eyes in the service. And that should be our heart as we come. But the second response to this, I think, is one of hope. If you know someone and love someone who has heard the gospel message again and again and again, and maybe they even hate it, they reject it, they hate God, don't have your eyes on them. Have your eyes on him. Because he can open eyes like that. The Apostle Paul, prior to being the Apostle Paul, was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And God said, now. Salvation. Isaiah was brought into the throne room of God in his vision. And God says, now. And he's redeemed. God is sovereign in salvation. And he is sovereign in salvation because... He is sovereign in illumination. He chooses when our eyes are opened. And when our eyes are opened, then like in that old hymn, we were blind, but now we see. It really is that simple. And I tell you what, every Christian, no matter how Arminian they claim to be, they all ultimately believe that God has sovereignty over illumination, or else you'd never pray for anyone to be saved. Why, why say, oh God, we pray that you would save this person if he has no way of doing so? We know he does. He's God. He's sovereign. And so we plead with him to open eyes. And we knock on that door, as Jesus said in that parable, talking about the, uh, the woman knocking on the door, asking for bread. And knock, 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 knock. And we keep on knocking and we keep on knocking. And we keep pleading with God to open the eyes of those we love. And open our eyes that we might not be in error. Look at their response afterwards. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn in us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I became a Christian when I was 12 years old. We talked about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And I was 12 and I just, I was going to this Christian group at school just simply to avoid detentions. And I was going to this Christian group and I was there for about, you know, three months maybe. And it just dawned on me, I, I believe this stuff. God opened my eyes. I'm not even sure exactly when, but at some point he opened my eyes and I just believed it. 
But there was another experience I had, probably when I was about 20 years old, when for the first time in my life, I got hold of expository teaching, which is what we typically do here on Sundays. Somebody teaching verse by verse through the Bible, taking the text, explaining it, showing the context and the flow. And I'd been a Christian for eight years already. I was young, but I wasn't stupid. And it was like, it was like never being able to walk and someone showing me how. It was just like this moment of, oh, wow. And from that day forth, I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon, and I could echo the disciples more times than I could possibly count. Man, when, when you heard those words expounding scripture, did our hearts not burn? It's my prayer every Sunday that that might happen to you in some way. That despite my sin and my frailties and my weakness and my, my imperfections, that God sovereignly might use the teaching of the Bible to open your eyes week by week. That you might be able to say with them, did our hearts not burn when he opened to us the scriptures? And so they return found the eleven with them gathered saying the Lord is risen indeed and he appeared to Simon and so they find out he's appeared to others and he's appeared to them and they now say what's happened on the road and what was known to them in the breaking of bread see the repetition how significant that theology is now we'll wrap up with this very briefly it says in verse 36 as they were talking about these things Jesus himself stood among them and said to them peace to you he was with them he broke bread he's gone now I say man you're never going to believe what's happened let me tell you what happened and boom he's back and if, if, if God ever shows up instantaneously I would like the first words he says to me to be peace be with you because I don't want to be like Isaiah where I think, that, I think I'm in trouble here right now so he says peace be with you but they were startled and frightened thought they saw a spirit and he said to them why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart See my hands and my feet, that, is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So-called liberal Christians, who aren't really Christians at all, have for years tried to say that the resurrection is merely spiritual. There's, no, there's barely any greater blasphemy than that. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved, for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So again, he's showing again the physicality of his resurrection and at the same time, there is that fellowship. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I love the addition of Psalms there. We've been teaching through the Psalms in between other books. And the point I've continually made is how theologically important and significant the Psalms are. And there's so much messianic material within them. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed 
with power from on high. Few things to note as we end. Firstly, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. What he did on the road to Emmaus with the two, he now does with all eleven. He opens their minds to understand the scripture. At the point, at the risk of being repetitive. Luke's repeated it, so I feel safe. Pray that God opens your eyes to the scripture. You know, sometimes those who are most eager to learn, sometimes those who most desperately want to, to grow in knowledge, they often have the most pride about that knowledge. And there is nothing that will blind you like pride blinds you. Nothing. I'm going to say that again. It is, it is so important you get this. There is nothing that will blind you like pride will blind you. Nothing. Don't care how much you know, how long you've studied for, how clever you think you are, there is nothing that will blind you more than pride will. Which is why when Paul speaks about the knowledge and the pride that often comes with it in 1 Corinthians, he again in that context is quoting from Isaiah 6. Because God is the one who will say, nope, you're staying blind. Nope, your eyes are open. Plead with him for mercy in our regard. And finally also, look at the message that he now opens their eyes to see. That the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That is, my friends, the gospel message. Christ suffered. He suffered on the cross in our place for our sins. It would have meant nothing if he hadn't have risen again. Chuck Swindoll says that the resurrection is the Father's amen to Jesus's it is finished. He may have accomplished something on the cross, but it's the resurrection that proved that. And Christ died in our place and he rose again and we need to place our trust in him through repentance. Notice that word there, repentance and forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from repentance. The word repentance at its very heart means turning. Repentance doesn't mean saying sorry. Repentance doesn't mean being perfect either. But repentance means we're going this way and we turn away from that way and we go the other way. That's why we need to be careful in accommodating all various types of sins as many churches are doing today. Because the irony of not addressing sin means that many people will never repent. And if they never repent, they'll never have forgiveness of sins. And then the gospel is proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Even that instruction they got wrong, didn't they? They appointed Matthias as being the twelfth apostle before the Spirit had come upon them. But nonetheless, God did it in his own time. And the Spirit of God came to them on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit of God came and the church began. And for each of us who believe, for each of us who have repented and received forgiveness of sins, we too have received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that every one of us has been baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit. We're part of God's church, then we have the Holy Spirit within us. What does that mean? That means we have the power 
We have the power now to do this. We have the power to do what? Context? To go and take this message out. We, praise God, have not been given the mission of Isaiah. Go and preach so that their eyes stay closed. But rather, we've been given the message, go preach that their eyes might be opened. But God will sovereignly decide who, and God will sovereignly decide when. And that, my friends, as always, is a reminder for us to humble ourselves and get on our knees before a holy and majestic God and say, you who are sovereign, have mercy and open eyes. The sovereignty of God in the illumination of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that eyes would have been opened today and eyes will be open in this place each and every time that we meet. Those who are unsaved, open eyes that they might turn from their sin, turn to you and be saved in the truth of your gospel message. And for those of us who you've shown mercy to in saving us, May you continually open our eyes through the illumination of your word that as we come before it, as we study it, that you would enable us to be better theologians through diligent study, but also through humility. May we bow the knee. May we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Where your word offends us, may we trust you. And may we recognize that when we struggle with your word, it's us that need to be changed and not you. You have all authority. All authority is yours. May we simply bow the knee before you. Amen.